0: I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington... We take you behind the music. In this episode, Bill Bukowski joins me to explore the life and music of one of the most popular 19th century composers, Johannes Brahms. We demonstrate what set his music apart, why he destroyed some of his early works, and why he was so good at writing theme and variations. Also, stay with us to the end to learn how his music is included on a very popular song you probably already know and a serial commercial. Brahms was a different composer than Mozart or Beethoven, wasn't he, Bill? Because instead of that meteoric rise to fame of Mozart, Brahms had a more slow and steady burn throughout his life.
1: Yeah, he was very gifted from the very beginning, but getting on his feet as a composer, that took a little while. Um, As opposed to Mozart or Beethoven, Brahms was a very shy person, very much a worrier. And uh, as one person said one time, I can't remember who, the world is made for people who are weren't cursed with self-awareness, and Brahms (laughs) had self-awareness in spades. But that also, I think, made him a better composer. And he took his
0: time, definitely. For instance, we know him as a great writer of symphonies. He wrote four, but his first symphony was not even premiered, played until he was 44 years old and was 20 years in the making.
1: And that, again, is the self-aware thing. He He was also very much aware of his predecessors and the musicians of the past who he revered, Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, and trying to write music like they wrote, and especially the symphonies of Beethoven, was an extremely daunting task for him.
0: And it's funny because we consider him as one of the greatest, and I think rightfully so, composers of this romantic period, the 19th century. If you grab the average person today and told them to hum a melody by Brahms, they would probably come up short until you tell them that Brahms wrote that cradle Uh, song, Lullaby. I know it from Bugs Bunny, but that's kind of where he is, I think, in the scope of the average listener. Love his music, but not always able to pick out certain melodies.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. I never thought about that until you had mentioned that. Yeah, Brahms' Lullaby. But other than that, unless you're a, a, a classical music aficionado, yeah, picking out a Brahms tune is a little difficult. But again, I think that's also what makes him so well worth exploring like we're about to do here.
0: Mm -hmm. So what's different about Brahms? I think there's a couple of key points we can remember when listening to his music. One, he was traditional. Rather, he leaned on these traditional forms of structure and putting the music together, kind of like how Mozart and Haydn were using, also early Beethoven, of course, in the beginning of the 1800s. I think this would be like a poet today preferring to use a sonnet form as opposed to free verse.
1: Right, and Brahms was very much aware of that. One of the things too about Brahms was he was a a great collector of musical manuscripts, and he studied them very, very carefully, so he definitely knew all about the forms, and that's what he used as the building blocks of his own works. However, a lot of differences too. Uh, Some of the rhythms of Brahms and some of the time signatures are a little off or a little challenging, and they certainly were for people who were listening to his works for the first time.
0: Yes, he really loved rhythmic development, using that as a driving force in the music, and we'll explain a little bit later on some of those things you mentioned. With rhythms and offbeats and hemiola, that's a new word for many, I think. I also think when I listen to his music, I love his orchestration. I think that's the first thing I kind of fell for with Brahms. It's strong, it's super colorful, I think it's rich and it's sweet. And when I'm listening, it's not like we have, here's the wind section, here's the brass, And here are the strings, like you might kind of hear in a Haydn symphony. Rather, using a paintbrush, he's able to blur the borders and lines between these sections and make a more uh, cohesive-sounding orchestra.
1: That's a very good way of putting it, yeah.
0: Also, he wrote absolute music, meaning he wrote music for music's sake. There wasn't a program or an underlying theme or playing out of scenes in his music and this was really popular at the time, right? Symphonic poems, programmatic music in the 1800s. But Brahms didn't do any of that.
1: No, Brahms wrote music that was only supposed to be represent what it was mm-hmm. and not so much like a, a picture of a mountain or a, a poetic theme or Valkyries uh, riding to rescue soldiers or whatever. He wasn't about that. That wasn't what he was interested in and it was, what, it was definitely not what he wanted to do.
0: So jumping into the early life of Brahms, he was born in 1833 in Hamburg, Germany, and his parents were musicians. They earned a modest living as gigging musicians, really like many musicians still today, as freelancers. He learned early music lessons with his father, and I like this, Bill, his first piano teacher said he could be such a great piano player, but he will not stop his never-ending composing. Yeah, signs of things to come, right? His first compositions that we can listen to, for instance, his Opus 4, Scherzo, and some art song in his Opus 7, those were when he was in about 18 years old in 1851. We don't have a lot of early music, as we'll also talk about later, because he destroyed a lot of his early music. Actually, he went out and searched it out and destroyed it.
1: Yeah, again, we're getting back to that self-aware and self-critical thing. He was very much like that, and he didn't want anything that he didn't think was top-notch.
0: And it sounds like he got his big break when he met this violinist, Ede Remini, a Hungarian um,
1: violinist, right? Yeah, Remini and Brahms had, I think, if memory serves, they had a, a lifelong friendship. Remini was Brahms's recital partner for many years. And he learned quite a lot from him, especially Hungarian music, as they called it, or Gypsy music was called now. We would say Romani. But you can hear that influence in all of Brahms' music. And
0: I think this is a really big influence or a key thing because the folk element and the rhythms of particularly Hungarian music, it's present in his music and the way he uses rhythm. I think Brahms is a great dance composer that you don't, it's just not something you think of right away when you think of Brahms, and I think that goes all the way back to this uh, great violinist.
1: Yeah, and you can hear that in his 21 Hungarian dances um, and all their different arrangements. It's right there. Um, I, I don't, I've never heard any contemporary reports of Brahms dancing, but I'll bet he was a pretty good dancer. I don't think about him dancing either. That, that would be... My guess is because he was so shy, he was a wallflower. Oh, Okay.
0: Well, thankfully, through Remini, he met Yosef Joachim, a violent virtuoso of the 19th century. And very importantly, he met Robert and Clara Schumann. And this would blossom into a lifelong friendship for the rest of Robert's life, which was just a few years. But Clara, for the coming decades, they really took Brahms under their wing and helped guide him, helped give him some of his first jobs, too.
1: Yeah, and all three of those friendships, we'll call them, were key to all of what happened and what he did in the rest of his life. Uh, Schumann helping to get him started, Joachim being a very close friend, they were only a couple of years apart, but he looked at Joachim as uh, definitely the senior and also the one with more experience. Brahms submitted a lot of his works to Joachim for his approval or correction or constructive criticism. Mm -hmm. And uh, Clara Schumann, well, there's a whole big story of Brahms and Clara.
0: This is now 1857. He's 24 years old. He gets a modest part-time post. Uh, It's an okay job. He gets that through Clara, actually. And he's in his late 20s when he has his first performance of an orchestral work. And it's just so strange to think about one of the greatest composers. He's well into his 20s, and it's the first time he gets his big performance. And it was his Piano Concerto Number 1. And it went okay in the first town, right, in Hanover, but in other places it did not go well.
1: Yeah, Leipzig was the one that he was really counting on having a big, uh, making a big splash, and he made a splash in a way that he didn't want to. The work went over horribly. Uh, The audience was very chilly, let's just say, uh, and uh, Brahms never forgot the
0: slight. I read that they had to, I mean, force him to stay on stage and finish the concerto even after the first movement. I mean, people were booing or hissing or something.
1: Yeah, and think about it. It's a long piece. It clocks in at about 45 minutes in an in a average performance, and he wanted to leave because I think at one point Somebody started to clap to hear the scherzo movement again, and he, he, that person was hissed down. All the time, Brahms had to stay on the stage and keep playing. Oh, gosh. Imagine that. I mean, you, you're a performing musician. That would be like a nightmare, I think, to you, right? That would
0: be a nightmare, yes. I don't even want to think about that. And thankfully, everyone's etiquette today is is mostly good. I've been to an orchestra concert, a uh, major orchestra, where they were booed, but uh, that's extraordinarily rare now. And the first piano concerto, it's a, I think it's a great representation of his of his music already. It's a very powerful opening. It follows this form and structure of uh, the sonata form that Mozart would use, for instance. And when the piano comes in, it's not a nice, hummable, easy to remember melody. It's rather this rhythmic idea that's repeated several times with these subtle harmonic changes. And that's not always the way you think of the piano first coming in, you know, with Beethoven's Emperor Piano Concerto or some by Mozart with a really kind of big statement.
1: Well, especially considering the big statement the orchestra makes in the very beginning of this work. This is a, has a very powerful and dramatic opening. As we'll find out, a lot of Brahms's music starts off that way. And then when the piano comes in, it almost sounds kind of diffident. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of uh, Mozart's D minor, Concerto Number 20, the same way. The piano kind of steals in after this Mm -hmm. very dramatic, powerful opening. Okay. So now it's
0: 1863. Brahms is 30 years old. He's had his first big orchestral work performed. It went well in some places, not so well in others. And he's 30 years old, and he moves to Vienna. And this is where he would stay for basically the rest of his life, and he becomes a music director of the Vienna Zing Academy. So it's the first big post at this age.
1: Yeah, and that's interesting, too. We don't always hear Brahms' songs and Lieder, but he wrote quite quite a number of them, and I'm guessing that they all came primarily from his experience here. That's a good point. And also thinking, well, he did write a
0: lot of great art song and a lot of good choral music as well. So when I'm thinking back to that first compositions that he chose not to destroy, his piano scherzo, but also some art song.
1: Yes, yes, indeed. And it's it's probably one of those areas that a lot of people who are just coming into Brahms aren't really very familiar with. But there's a real rich treasure there, I found his, especially his choral songs are just absolutely gorgeous.
0: Mm-hmm, the Liebes uh, waltzes.
1: Yes, Libus leader waltzes, yes.
0: He also has an opportunity here to play for Richard Wagner, the huge opera composer, and he plays for him his Handel Variations, and Wagner he was, he didn't hate it but he wasn't super into his music at that point.
1: Well this is again this gets back to that controversy or um, argument in the 19th century musical circles, the uh, new German school versus absolute music, and opinions on both sides were very, very strong. It's actually kind of an interesting story. The new German school would be Liszt and and Wagner, program music, so to speak. And of course, on the other side, it's absolute music, of which Brahms was considered to be the avatar. He was considered to be the leader. Brahms, of course, he really didn't want to have anything to do with the controversy whatsoever, and he just absented himself from a lot of the discussions. Even if people were putting him forward as the leader or the anti-Wagner, he didn't want any of it. Again, he was very shy.
0: Yes. He did not want to get too involved after this point in uh, musical politics.
1: And it's distracting, too, I think, as a, for a creative artist. It's distracting to get uh, too wrapped up in politics like that.
0: And these handle variations, it's a good time to explain another point. We've heard that his structure is more traditional. And here we can see how he uses rhythm. It's a great theme, and he uses some variations. Number two, The second variation demonstrates how he uses rhythms against each other, the hemiola, as we can call it, a rhythm of three against two. So if you think of dissonance, right, you have two notes that don't seemingly go together and you play them at the same time and they clash, right? Right. Now, I think we can have a similar thing with a rhythm, two rhythms that don't seem to go together but actually can. So we can think of it like this. So if we have a rhythm of just, you know, two, you know, one, two, one two and then three one two three one two three right those are very different but you put them together and you get that and in this variation it's very 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 subtle and it shows how it uses it kind of in one way to make the rhythm a little bit muddy also put some video on the show notes page, because you might have to listen to it a time or two, but in the left hand, those notes are just kind of peeking out in between the, the windows or spaces, the daylight of the three notes going on in a row up top. That, And he does it in a way that's kind of muddy, but also he does it in a way that's very, very articulate and clear, thinking of his double concerto, very, very strong in how that's used. And once you hear this, and it might take a few times to to catch it, but you'll find it in all of his music where he's using these rhythms together to push forward to one big moment.
1: And this is something, too, about Brahms' music that keeps you coming back, because you realize that there's a lot more going on than appears on the surface. Mm -hmm. Brahms was also very clever, and he liked to make jokes and make puns, too. And I think he would like the fact that people would hear something, oh, that's very nice, not realizing the underlying structure, which is giving it that sound.
0: And, of course, Brahms wrote a lot of theme and variations and when you think about it what makes a great set of theme and variations that's rhythmic development right you have a theme and through 20 or so variations you you can flip it around harmonically but rhythmically that's what also makes it very very interesting and that was the very big strength of Brahms and going further in the 1860s he loses his mother and this is when he begins a work that is very pivotal in his career that is his german requiem or ein deutsches requiem He writes several movements of it, and he has them performed in 1868. And it sounds like this was a huge moment. It was kind of like Brahms has now arrived on the international stage.
1: Yeah, this is such a a wonderfully mature work and a work that is very much beloved even today. And it's almost hard to believe that it came actually at a relatively early time in his life and career.
0: Before any symphonies. Exactly. Now, we've been saying that he's traditional and more inward-looking, but a Requiem in German, that's unusual, right? That's usually in Latin, but here we have it in German.
1: Well, this this again is is Brahms' sort of subverting expectations. You think of a a Requiem, you think of, you know, D.A.C.R.A. and the Requiem of Mozart, for example. And with Brahms, he was not a very religious person, let's just say, he was not a, a big churchgoer. And he specifically wanted a Requiem that was not in Latin, that was in German, hence German Requiem. And he wanted a Requiem too that was not so much for the dead, but for the living, meant to console the living. And I think that's one of the big reasons why this work is still popular today. Oh, it's very popular. It speaks to everybody.
0: He follows this up with those Hungarian dances that had been orchestrated or written out for, I think in several different ways, some of them for um, orchestra, all of them for piano, also double piano, I think.
1: Piano four hands, I think, was the way they were originally written. But you're right. They've been adapted to piano and violin, orchestra, and so on and so forth.
0: And also at this time, those Liebeslieder waltzes that we mentioned for a second earlier, I think in these, and a lot of, of these works, you start to hear also his enjoyment of a long short long rhythm kind of that dancing rhythm bum 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 and using that to shape the line I, th- I just feel like when I listen to it it's a little he uses it a little bit more than other composers maybe it's that uh, dance quality of course a waltz but you find it in in many different places in his music
1: and this is what makes Brahms Brahms and not you know, pseudo-Beethoven or Mozart or something. It makes him what he is, and this is his particular gift, and this is where he really shines.
0: Also at this time, one of my favorite works that he wrote is his Horn Trio. This one shows a lot of great things. One, it shows that he was still very old-fashioned about certain things like the horn. By this time, the horn and all the brass instruments besides um, trombone, although, of course, trombone did have valves, but anyway, the horn had valves, and that was what everyone was basically using. But he was always writing for the natural horn, the horn with no valves, so you don't have any assistance of adding or taking away tubing to help facilitate your lips to um, to make all the notes. So it's a bit brighter sounding. It's more compact. But I think that's also an instrument he learned when he was a child, too.
1: Yeah, I think that that's entirely possible. And again, that's Brahms sort of hewing back to tradition and something. But if you're if you're familiar with this work, or especially if you hear the last movement of the Brahms horn trio, you realize how difficult that must have been for somebody playing a natural horn.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean today, you'll hear it played on the valved horn. I mean, a natural horn is a very specialized instrument. You can hear this. This is performed on the natural horn, but you'll you'll hear it often with the, the valved horn. This also... I think is a greater testament to his brilliant orchestration, the way he writes the notes together. We are so spoiled today with great recordings and just centuries of great composers that have just stood the test of time. It's so easy to write music for three musicians and just sound terrible. Like you can't fill the space. It's not balanced, but with Brahms, it's a huge soundscape. With just three instruments, and he, it's like a half hour long. And it's, you never feel like it's missing something or there's, you're getting bored or whatever. He creates a whole world with just three instruments. And
1: it's also impressive, too, that this work is kind of a one-off. He didn't do anything like this again. And it's a real standout in all of his chamber works, I think.
0: And he's into his late 30s. He's turning 40 now. Any symphonies? Not yet. Not a symphony yet. He writes his But a lot of pressure. <laughs> a lot of pressure, that's right. And to fill the time, he's writing another great work that we hear, his Haydn variations. Again, he's a great theme and variation composer. Again this one I just love the the color and the orchestration when he uses the the winds in the beginning and when the contrabassoon comes in. And at the end it's just so, so brilliant. And that's the whole thing. He's such a great rhythmic Developer that he writes these theme variations, and they're all they're all different, and they've stood the test of time.
1: By the time you get to some of the middle variations, you forget what the original theme was, which I think is also part of the idea. Mm -hmm. And then when he brings it back
0: in the end, oh, it brings it all together. Well, now it's time, in 1876, for finally his first symphony to premiere. The opening of this one is quite iconic. It's not like pretty much any other symphony I've heard doesn't start with this opening.
1: No, and again, Brahms does this a lot in his music, as we heard with his piano concerto, very forceful, very strong, and really kind of reaching out and grabbing you by the lapels when it begins. It's the same thing with the symphony number no. one. And it keeps going, and it keeps going up and yearning and stretching to where you don't think it can possibly go anymore. I mean, talk about romantic.
0: Oh, yeah. And I've heard you describe before the opening with this timpani, it's kind of like the the footsteps of Beethoven?
1: Yeah, that was a famous quote by Brahms. Uh, he had had a lot of pressure on him from his colleagues and his friends. You have to write a symphony, you have to write a symphony. Beethoven wrote symphonies, you're his heir. And uh, he w- at once said, you don't know what it's like to hear the heavy footsteps of that giant behind me. And he was speaking of Beethoven. The other interesting thing, too, is that at his composing desk in his home, he had a bust of Beethoven. Oh. Imagine him putting that kind of pressure on himself every day. I, I imagine he turned it around sometimes. You never know. You never know. But that's you're right. That tromp, tromp, tromp in the beginning, maybe that was his nod to Beethoven. I didn't think about it that way because I did not heard that. But once you said that, and I'm listening to
0: it, and, I, and a little bit later after that, there's pizzicato in the strings. And now in my head, it's like, these are now... He's moved beyond Beethoven. These are the echoes of Beethoven in the past as Brahms has moved forward. Also, again, he loves the horn. A huge moment for the horn in this symphony. There is a sudden trombone chorale. There is a very famous chorale theme in the end. For someone's first symphony, when you think of the first symphony of Mozart or Haydn or or, um, Beethoven's a little bit different, of course, but there's not a lot of first symphonies that, you know, bring down the house. But he does so much here, so many different things, that it was immediately just a huge work.
1: Yeah, I I also look at this as a way of... um Brahms sort of slaying the monster or slaying the giant. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a little bit, I'm thinking of like Captain Ahab and Moby Dick. He tasks me. Yeah. <laughs> I, can see, I can see Brahms saying that about Beethoven. He tasks me. And and he comes up with a, a work that goes in, a, in essence that continues the tradition of Beethoven and it is also his own work. It's not warmed over Beethoven in the least. Mm-hmm. And now he
0: can turn the Beethoven bust back around. Right Now he's comfortable. And this is when I mean, he's hitting the height of his fame. It's been the slow burn up into his mid-40s now to when he has these great moments. He has symphonies. He has his violin concerto. Again, Josef Joachim, that lifelong friend from before, collaborates with him. Joachim writes the cadenza. He has his academic festival overture. Again, listen for the driving rhythms, a lot of offbeats. And a lot of dance elements that we find from the Hungarian influences of before, right? Right, exactly. We have, this is something, I don't know, maybe it's just me. He's now in his late 40s. And whenever I think of Brahms, all I see is the guy with the beard, the huge beard. But until this point, he had a
1: shaved face, didn't he? Yeah, Brahms uh, came to Vienna, blonde kind of a fair of face, almost a baby face, actually, and um, also very shy, kind of a loner. I think the beard, in essence, was a way of sort of putting a little bit more distance between him and other people and also kind of a, a, a way of growing up, getting beyond the sort of boyish look that he had.
0: And kind of playing a joke, I... I think I read he was also—he showed up to a concert after having grown this beard over, I don't know, a summer or something like that, and he pretended to be someone else in front of people he knew very well, and he fooled them.
1: That sounds like something he'd do.
0: Again, he loves the horn, and he's traditional, but he breaks so many expectations. His second piano concerto, people often joke, at least musicians do, it's also—it's a horn concerto. It starts with— a solo horn. How many piano concertos start with a solo horn? I'm not, I'm not, I'm coming up
1: short. Yeah, no, I can't think of anything. And it's, it's another example, too, that in a lot of, in this work and in another work, I think the violin concerto, at different points, he gives really good parts to other instruments. Mm -hmm. And of course, in this piano concerto in the third movement, the cello gets a really good line.
0: And now he's approaching his 50s. He's had a, a whole career of, of decades of writing music. It's that slow burn. It's not a ton of operas coming out one after another like Rossini. Of course, Brahms didn't write any operas at all. That's another I think thing to think about. He wrote no programmatic music, not even an
1: opera. Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure why he didn't.
0: Maybe the opportunity didn't happen?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure he didn't want to write an opera. hmm Again, it it sort of fits with the rest of his music that he would not write one. Right. It it was enough for him, I think, just to produce one symphony, let alone four.
0: Yes. Four fantastic symphonies that all, they're all a little bit different, but that richness of color, the way he uses rhythm, the structure, and thinking about the way he's kind of been, you know, we say old-fashioned, it feels like the wrong word to say, but with the structure, it sounds like people were saying, okay, he's he's old fashioned, he's following in these older forms, he's not doing what Wagner and Liszt are doing with kind of throwing that out the window and writing huge scale programmatic music. But it wasn't when I'm listening to Brahms that he was old fashioned, it was just that he was like, we did not take this form
1: far enough, there's right. so much more to say. Right, that's exactly where Brahms fools you, if you're not paying very close attention, because he was using the forms from the past, but he was transmogrifying them, in essence, using them to write Brahms's music for the present and for the future.
0: Also, at this time, one of his final works before we'll say he goes into, quote-unquote, retirement, his double concerto. Again, another one to that really sets up that he Milla 3 against 2 rhythm. But in 1890, He's 57 and he retires. End of story, right? Well, you would think so.
1: Yes, but he still has a couple of other chapters to write.
0: In fact, it was just uh, I think a year later when he heard clarinetist Ricard Muehlfeld and was just blown away. I think he wrote very not much for the clarinet, and all of a sudden he comes out of retirement and he writes music for Muehlfeld clarinet quintet, um, sonatas, all kinds of things. And he just comes out of retirement for that.
1: Yeah, that was interesting, too, because it also reminds me, in essence, of Mozart being introduced to a clarinetist, too, later in his life and writing some extraordinary works for that instrument. Brahms did the same thing. The other thing that Brahms did, too, is he kind of hedged his bets. He also arranged those clarinet works for viola. Ah, that's
0: funny. He hedges his bets, but he didn't have to. These are some really fantastic works for the clarinet, still very popular today.
1: Yeah, and the flavor of them is, is perfect late Brahms, which I think the best adjective I can come up with is autumnal.
0: And what makes them, I like that phrase autumnal, because what I also like about them is that when sometimes a, people come out of retirement sports, writing poetry or, or anything else, sometimes it isn't their greatest works. But when they come out of retirement with this burst of inspiration because of something, Muehlfeld and the sound of the clarinet, especially his playing, it makes things take on a different form. But of course, he also wrote some more music for Clara Schumann at this time. She dies. And they had a very, very close relationship,
1: didn't they? Yeah, close, uh, intimate, but not um, physically intimate as far as we know. Mm -hmm. For Clara, I think Robert was the love of her life. But Brahms and Clara remained close pretty much till the end of Clara's life.
0: And the final music that Brahms wrote 11 chorale preludes for organ. These are based on Lutheran verses and almost creepy in how fitting or just how timely it is. The number 11, his final work, is uh, this chorale prelude, O World, I Must Leave Thee.
1: How appropriate, Brahms' own farewell.
0: so. A tremendous career of great art song, great music for solo piano, so much stuff. and We can only mention um, so much here, but of course on the show notes page we'll have a lot of resources. And even in these final years of his life, Bill, he is searching out for copies of music he wrote when he was very, very young, or music he just no longer liked and was destroying it.
1: Yeah, I think he knew his days were numbered, and he wanted to make sure that Whatever legacy he left was the way he wanted to leave it, and he didn't want anything extraneous out there, uh, which is why I think that there are no, like, new Brahms's discoveries, new Brahms' discoveries, like there, are, like there is with Beethoven or recently with Mozart.
0: Right. There's always something coming up every, like, 10 years, it seems, found in an old archive behind the, you know, dresser in Prague.
1: Yeah, but it's interesting. Now that I think about it, you never hear about that with Brahms.
0: No. Today, his music is, of course, very much loved. It's used by all kinds of artists, including Santana, right?
1: That's right. That's actually an interesting story. I was, um, I remember reading about this, that Santana had sort of a late life. Carlos Santana, the guitar player and band leader, he had a, a late surgence in his own career with an album called Supernatural, which won all kinds of Grammys. And there was a hit song called Love of My Life. And the main theme of that song comes from Brahms. And the story was is his father passed away. And so he He put a two-month moratorium on all music, not playing anything, not listening to anything. and He was driving his kid to school, and he popped the radio on because it it was something he wanted to do. And what came on but the third movement of Brahms' third symphony. Okay. And he used that theme for the song Love of My Life uh, from his album Supernatural, one of all kinds of grandmas. So there's uh, the ghost of Brahms uh, coming back and being an inspiration for someone.
0: And I love that perhaps the, for many people, the first time they ever heard Brahms was indirectly through here, through Santana. Exactly. Now, also, I love this. People might have remembered this commercial from, I think it was the 2000s. I definitely remember seeing this. It is a commercial for Raisin Bran, or rather, Raisin Brahms.
1: I'm
0: starving. What's for breakfast? Guten Tag! Johannes Brahms! I bring you arts-enriched raisin, Brahms, fortified with increased test scores and creative problem-solving skills. It's good! And good for you. Bobby? Susie? Don't worry! That's just the power of the arts! (laughs) And to describe it a little bit, Brahms comes through with a piano like the Kool-Aid man blowing through a wall. That's right. And the kids are sitting there, and then when he's like, you know, Bobby, Susie, the kids... They take a bite of the Raisin Brahms, and suddenly they have huge beards, these kids. (laughs) Uh, See, breakfast is good for you. Breakfast is good for you. I just love that Brahms is still finding his way into commercials today. So, Bill, what is, for you, a piece of music that you either love or that you would really recommend people to listen to by Brahms?
1: I can actually think of four pieces of his that I love. Uh, One is his cello sonata number one, which has a very dark and very intimate, almost moody sort of flavor that I just find irresistible. It's one of those Brahms melodies that you just can never get out of your head. The cello sonata number two, which is a wonderful work too, is like the flip side of it. It reminds me of uh, the academic festival overture and the tragic overture, two sides of one coin. The other piece is the Piano Concerto Number 2, which took me a long time to get into because it's such a big, massive, and from a piano standpoint, very difficult work to pull off. But there's this magical moment in the scherzo, a scherzo and a piano concerto, which nobody had ever really done before. The scherzo is a very dark and moody and dramatic piece. And then all of a sudden, like sunburst, these strings come in with this sort of almost like a country-sounding chime that is like a ray of sunshine that never fails to delight me. The other piece is a work that that I keep coming back to because for many years it never left me satisfied, and that's the Symphony Number no. 4. It has some of the most captivating melodies that you'll ever hear, the, the one in the very beginning I fell in love with it the very first time that I heard it. ¶¶ And the end is sort of a pascalia, and it sounds like sort of a, like a cop-out at first blush. But the more you listen to it, and a really good performance will show how all of that ties together. But it's also a reminder to me that Brahms is a composer that I keep coming back to because, well, because he tasks me. Oh, one other piece, too, is we were talking about late-life Brahms. His Opus 118 piano pieces, one that just absolutely will knock you out is the Intermezzo Number 2 from Opus 118. I remember recently, a couple of years ago, I was at a concert and the pianist performed that as an encore. And a woman seated just ahead of me turned to me and says, that was beautiful. What was that piece? And I knew exactly what it was. Those are some great recommendations we'll have
0: Uh, Videos on the show notes page. I would recommend uh, also the cello sonata number one. The opening is haunting. Isn't it? And it's just, when you hear that, I mean, your first thought also as a musician is, he must be an incredible art song composer too. Yes. Because just the way it is. Symphony number two is one that I love. One, because it's the only one I get to play, because it's the only one that he included a tuba on. But... It's just a great one, and the way it ends, it's so energetic, it's in D major, so it's just this really rich, bright, creamy, I think sugary, sweet sound that is just, there's not really many composers or anyone at all who can stand in with Brahms on this level of orchestration like this. Well, Bill, I think we've said it all for Brahms for right now. This is just, of course, an introduction. There's so much to learn about Brahms and his music, and we'll have more information
1: on the show notes page. Sounds good. There's plenty to explore with the music of Brahms, and I guarantee you one taste isn't enough. You'll keep coming back for more.
0: Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on this episode and to see that raisin Brahms commercial, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or episode ideas, send me an email at classicalbreakdown@weta.org. at I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.